1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Up to this point in Luke, we have seen Jesus perform many miracles, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, causing the blind to see, feeding thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish the religious leaders of the day wanted to see Jesus dead as many people began to follow him. Jesus warned the crowds of the Pharisees' hypocrisy and called all men to lay down their lives to be one of his disciples. Jesus told them they must consider the cost. The scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus and condemned him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus shared three parables about how God is excited when sinners repent and turn back to their loving father. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 16, verse 1.
2: For the first time in a while here in Luke 16, we see that Jesus has real disciples following him instead of just a mob interested only in the miracles. The three parables that Jesus taught them in chapter 15 about God's joy over sinners who repent while teaching them much, it was, remember, primarily in response to the Pharisees who had critiqued the time that Jesus was spending teaching sinners, right? This chapter now kind of shows us what Jesus had originally wanted to talk to these guys about, that God is to be our only master and and that we're to be faithful with what he's entrusted to us. And for this group, that means that it's time to make things right where they had been doing so much wrong in the past. So chapter 16, verse 1, we see that Jesus also said unto his disciples. This follows right on the wings of chapter 15. He gives the parable of the prodigal son, and then he just comes right after that. He said unto his disciples, now there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, and to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship they may receive me into their homes. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much do you owe unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said unto him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write, King James' says, score, it means 80. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. You ever read that parable and had no clue what it was talking about? Welcome to my week. (laughs) I read through this and I thought, Lord, what in the world are you saying? (laughs) Honestly. And I thought to myself, I've taught this before. So you'd think I'd remember what it meant? Well, hopefully we can arrive at an accurate understanding this morning. The parable starts off with an introduction. We get to meet this guy, the steward. There was a certain rich man, the master, who had a steward. Now, the steward here, the word means the manager of a household. He would be the one responsible for assigning all of the other members of the household their duties and then paying their wages. Now, in this case, though, it wasn't just simple household duties. The master was so wealthy, he was rich, that he owned a large amount of farming property. And so this steward was actually responsible, not just for the household servants and giving them their responsibilities and paying them their wages, but he was responsible for dispensing the funds that was necessary to run these farm holdings and then collecting the profits from those who were hired to farm them the servants that were there to farm them. It was very common in those days for those who were the servants responsible for farming that land to live on that land with the majority of the harvest going to the master and then what was left would then become their wages and so they would live off that. As a servant of that kind of a master, you had it pretty good. You lived independently. You only reckoned with your master when the harvest came in and the steward told you what you owed. The rest you kept for yourself and your family to live on. Again, a good arrangement for these servants, but only a good arrangement if the steward was an honest businessman, because if he required you to give more than the normal amount that a master would agree with his servants on, then you would live a very difficult life having to stretch those remaining profits to survive. That's the situation here. And so it says, and the same, the steward was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So someone brought charges against the steward with hostile intent. Someone complained to the master about this steward that he was being dishonest. This steward, he was overcharging on the crops that were due to his master. But the accusation was that he had wasted his goods. In other words, he is not overcharging us and giving it to you. He's overcharging us and keeping it for himself, in other words, he's telling the master, the master's saying, this is what I want you to charge my landowners, and the servant's going, all right, and then he goes to the landowners and he says, this amount is what the master wants, and whether it's 10%, 15% more, I don't. we don't know, but whatever it was extra, he was pocketing that and then spending it and living a, a luxurious life. He wasn't saving it, he was spending the extra on himself. So he's robbing from the servant's portion, but under the pretense of his master's required payment. Now, the master didn't know he was doing this. But when someone brings an accusation, the master believes it because he plans to fire this guy, and justly so. Look down here. It says in verse three, or verse two. And he, the rich uh, owner, called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this about you? What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. Literally means, give me back the financial statements you were responsible for. Give me back the contracts you were responsible for. Why? For you may no longer be stewardship. Because your integrity is in question, you can't be in this position any longer. I'm gonna manage the books, I'm gonna find out if this accusation is true. You know, it's clear that he believes the accusation's true because he takes away all this guy's responsibilities. So what is the steward going to do? Well, he's got a conundrum here in verse three. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. The phrase there takes away means is in the process of taking it away. He hadn't turned over the contracts and the financial statements yet. This is his initial reaction to the accusation brought by the master. What am I going to do? He says, for I cannot dig, and to beg I am ashamed. The phrase there, cannot dig, it means I'm not strong enough to dig. Usually you would not arrive at this position as a young man. You'd usually arrive at this position of importance as a servant over a long amount of faithful service. So this was likely an older gentleman. But he also says to beg, I am ashamed. Maybe he should have thought of that that before he lived it up by cheating other people. A lesson that would hit home for many in Jesus' audience right now. Remember, what did the Pharisees say about these guys? In verse chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and the sinners. Remember, the publicans are the tax collectors. And how did they make their money? They made their money by cheating everybody. They were hated, despised as traitors. These other people, they were sinners. They had done something in the community that was so bad that they got labeled as sinners, so much so that, that was, everybody knew who that's, that's who they were. Maybe they had ripped people off. Maybe they were bad businessmen. We don't know. But the idea here is that this message of living it up to make your life better at the expense of others was something these people, that was the story of their life. You know, one of the challenges that you and I face as Christians is when we know that we need what we need to do to obey God, but it's going to cost us something. Oh, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church until your wife isn't so easy to love. It's easy to look, oh, well, I know the Bible says, wives, submit to your husband." Says unto the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then you have a husband who's not loving you like Jesus. All the things that the scriptures say, they become the real test of obedience when it's going to cost us something, Right? And it's very easy in those moments to push God away or to compromise what we need to do. Because when we compromise what we need to do, it means we're really not doing what we need to do. These publicans and sinners were facing hard decisions, but they needed to trust God and make them. So we can see that Jesus is trying to get their attention here and that he has a lesson for them. Now, This guy in particular didn't have the motive of obedience or the fact that he'd been forgiven or that he loved God and was following God now. His motive, only motive was self-preservation. So he comes up with a plan to avoid manual labor or begging. He says, verse four, I am resolved what to do, which literally means I've got it. I, I see what I need to do now. He's got a solution. That when I am put out of the stewardship they may receive me into their houses. Now, who are they? We'll meet they in verse five, okay? But the idea here, or let's read it, verse five. So he called on every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much do you owe unto my Lord? So the they are the debtors. These are those who had been loaned a field and needed to make the agreed payment from the harvest to his master. So he's saying, I know what I'm gonna do. I've got a solution that I'm gonna call these people in that, when, I, when I'm put out of the stewardship, they'll receive me into their homes. They will be sympathetic towards me when I get fired. So what does he do to make them sympathetic towards him? What's his solution? Well, keep, he says, how much do you owe unto my Lord when the first landowner comes in? And this guy says, well, 100 measures of oil. The measure is a bath back then. It's a measurement they used back then. It's about eight gallons. So this guy owed his master 800 gallons of olive oil. And he says to him, well then, take your bill, take your contract that, that I made with you, the big phony one, all right? Take that contract and sit down quickly and in, it said you owed 100 of these things. You owed 800 gallons of olive oil, make it 400 gallons. Basically just doubled this guy's salary. I mean, how would you be doing right now if somebody just doubled your salary? You'd probably be pretty happy, wouldn't you? In the U.S., the cheapest olive oil runs about $15 a gallon. So this would be a savings of $6,000. Now, when you consider that olive oil was a luxury back then, Revelation 6.6 6 talks about how in the time of famine during the tribulation, the rich get richer because it says, you know, don't touch the wine and the oil, right? Olive oil was a luxury back then, okay? When you consider that, it's probably even more expensive than it would be today. This steward has just made this servant a very wealthy person, a very wealthy person. Now next, he says to the next guy who comes in, he says, how much do you owe? And he goes, well, I I farm wheat. I owe owe 100 measures of wheat. The measure would be the core, which is about 10 to 12 bushels or 650 pounds of wheat. So this guy owed his master on the phony contract 65,000 pounds of grain. He says, take it and write 80, four score. That would be 13,000 pounds of grain that the servant can now either use for his own you know, eating needs or to sell. Again, in a moment, this servant has become a wealthy man. Now, why does the servant do this? Because he knows I'm going to get fired when my, my, my boss sees I've been cooking the books. And so this will cause these people to be sympathetic to his flight, for his plight, and they'll likely take him in. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, Pastor Will, won't this get him in more trouble with his master? Isn't this theft? You know, I mean, this is money that's due to his master. And now he's, he's you know, basically letting these guys off easy so that they'll take care of him. I mean, isn't this theft? Well, he's already in trouble for embezzlement. How can he make it worse? That's what he's thinking. I'm already in trouble. I'm already gonna lose my job. Well, what happens? Verse eight, here's the, the ending. And the Lord, this rich man, the master, commended the unjust steward because he had done Wisely. The word commended is a little bit too positive of a word. We usually think of commendations for someone who did something heroic or, you know, valiant or very morally good. It clearly labels this guy as the unjust steward. The word unjust means unrighteous, someone who's doing something that's wrong. The Lord commended this evil steward. The word commended, he would not commend a man who had robbed him, not once, but twice. The word simply means there to be held in admiration or to compliment or praise. Basically, the reason it says is because he did wisely. Now, this word wisely, it's only used in this place in the New Testament. It's not the normal word the Bible uses for wisdom. It's not godly or biblical wisdom. The word there actually means to use one's mind to act shrewdly. The tone here is that the master still fired him. But he actually admired the fact that this guy could think well enough on his feet in a tight space to survive the ordeal. You know, he's basically looking at him going, you little rat. You little rat! Huh? Yeah, I gotta give you. I gotta give you. You got some good spot. I gotta give you something for that. You're still fired, and I'm probably gonna try to put you in jail. But you, you got you got some quick thinking going on there. I can see how you got to this spot. So, what's the lesson? You need to be an unjust steward, right? <laughs> this is where it gets a little difficult. This guy had recognized that he was in massive trouble and he did what was necessary to fix it. But why would Jesus, why in the world would Jesus tell us a story about an evil man who's able to think on his feet? Are we supposed to follow his example by doing whatever it takes to secure our safety when we get caught or we end up in trouble or create trouble for ourselves? No, not at all. Jesus' point is at the end of this verse. He says, for, and here's the point, The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The children of this world, it means a non-God-fearing person. In other words, someone who doesn't live by God's standard, clearly like this unjust steward. Someone who lives by their own standard. Someone who lives by their own standard, they are in their generation shrewder. Same word for wise here. They can think on their feet better than the children of light. The idea in their generation means people of the same kind. In other words, when an unsafe person interacts with other unsafe people, they know how to look out for their, for their own skin when they get themselves into trouble. I don't have these moral constraints around me to figure out how to make myself prosper or thrive, even though I've made a mess here and I've gotten caught. They know how to deal with the unsafe people. They know how to work the system. And so they'll do whatever they got to do to do it. On the other hand... When a believer acts with his own kind, and that's the idea here, when a believer acts with other believers or with the Lord, we don't do so well, is <laughs> what Jesus is saying. I remember a story someone told, I don't remember how long ago it was, I think it was about 15 years ago, but there was a very well known pastor in Colorado. But he was well known in, in political action communities and a couple other things as well. He spoke at a lot of places, a lot of big events. And he ended up getting busted because he he was seeing a male escort. And so when that all came to light, you know, the the church pretty much trashed him. And so anyway, I remember a friend of mine who who knew this individual, he was talking about, you know, he was at at a restaurant trying to share his faith with a, a friend of his. And this friend basically eventually said to him, he said, listen, I don't disagree with everything you say about Jesus. He goes, my problem is with you. And as you're having this conversation, the news was talking about this event where this guy had fallen and what was going on. And the pastor said, this other guy said to me, said, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, look at this guy. He's one of your own. You eat your own. He goes, clearly this is a guy who's gotten himself in a ton of trouble and he needs a bunch of help. But all you do is eviscerate him. He goes, I believe everything that I see about Jesus and I see in the Bible it makes sense to me. He goes, but if that's the result, I don't want any part of that. We have a tendency to, Unfortunately, act like the unsaved when we deal with each other. We don't use our heads well. We tend to lose our minds when we get into a difficult situation as Christians, and then we end up being critical of one another or even sometimes being deceptive with one another. I mean, how many times have you heard about the person who they made a really poor choice and then they just drop off the map? What would be the most sensible thing to do in a situation where you've blown it as a Christian? Go to your family, right? Go to to your family and get help, right? And yet, why does it seem like when that happens, when somebody really blows it big time, or they, I I don't know the way way to say it, but but when someone has a failure, that they don't come to their family? It's almost as if Jesus says, you know, we don't do a good job when we get into trouble. And see, these new believers, they're former tax collectors. Well, not former yet, they're still tax collectors. Sinners, people who have made bad choices, made a lot of mistakes. And they would be tempted to preserve their way of life that their evil deeds had gotten them. See, as Christians, what Jesus is saying, we don't live to save our own skin anymore now that we follow him. They and we, we need to face our past wrongs by writing them. We need to work together to help one another to fix those things, even if it costs us something. And so in verse nine, he tells these guys here, he says, rather than pulling away, or rather than compromising, or rather than not making things right, he says, here what you need to do. Verse nine, this is the point. This is the point of the whole parable. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now again, you read that and you go, okay, that's really difficult to understand. What in the world does that mean? I need to make friends with, of money or wealth. The mammon of unrighteousness, it means unrighteous worldly wealth. That which the world craves, labors, and fights for. That which 1 Timothy 6, 6, 6, 10 says is the root of all kinds of evil. That which is that. It says we need to make friends of that? No, that's not what it says. The word they're friends, it means philos. It means associates for whom there is affection and personal regard. We need to make to ourselves Other people that we have affection and personal regard for, not the mammon of unrighteousness, but from out of the mammon of unrighteousness. That's what the word of there means. It's ek in the Greek, which means from out of or by means of. It's easy to misunderstand this statement as we need to make money our friend. Not at all. Rather than crave labor and fight for more money so we can satisfy our evil desires, we need to build true, meaningful relationships from out of the resources at our disposal. Why? That when, not ye fail, that's another bad translation, but when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. When money doesn't matter anymore, when does money not matter anymore? When you're done with this life. When you're in heaven, there will be no currency in heaven. There'll be no currency in heaven. So when that happens, then they, those friends who you invested to on the earth, they'll receive you into everlasting habitations. What's Jesus saying? The children of this world live for now, and they do whatever they have to do to get by. That's not the way we're to live as Christians. We are to live for eternity. And you know what? There's only one thing from this world that you can take with you into eternity. And what is it? Other people, right? that's it. That's the only thing you can take with you to eternity. Not your car, not, not the new amped up computer you just bought, not the switch, right? Not the home, none of those things. Not the pool that you just installed. Jesus, I have a better one anyway. Crystal Sea, tough crowd. <laughs> There's only one thing you can take with you to eternity. It's other people. These publicans and sinners had loved the world with everything in them. I mean, they had followed and pursued what they craved with everything in them. They'd taken advantage of others in such dastardly ways that they were known as publicans and sinners. You could identify them easily. And Jesus says, it's time to fix that. It's time to make amends. It's time to start investing in something else. And you know, when we have an environment like that in our church where people are investing in people, then guess what happens? When you blow it and you fail, you run to your family. If we have an environment that's not like that, the rest of us are trying to save our own skin. And so if you're trying to save your own skin, what happens when someone falls down and the enemy's after you? You leave them behind. If that's the environment we're cultivating, then when someone falls down, they're not gonna be thinking clearly. They're not going to be making the hard choice, so the right choice. So he's telling these new believers, guys, you need to make some right decisions here, some hard decisions. You need to make things right. It's time to make amends. And thus, now we get to the teaching, verses 10 through 13. Jesus starts off with a truth about character, just about a person's character. He says, Listen, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. This is a truth statement, a fact of life. I, I always like kind of put a little symbol next to things like that in the scripture. This is just a true thing. It's a true concept. Like, for example, I think Paul says, you know, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I put a little, little note next to that. That's a truth I need to never forget. This is a truth statement here. He that is faithful, dependable, reliable, trustworthy in that which is least, that which is of very little importance, he will also be the same in much, in that which is the upper range of importance. He that is unjust, unrighteous, doing wrong, not living by God's standard, in that which is of least importance, he'll also be doing that which is wrong and doesn't operate by God's standard in that which is the upper range of importance. In other words... If I'm unreliable and make poor choices and things of very little importance, I cannot magically turn on a switch and become trustworthy in a thing of great importance. I can't. It doesn't work that way. I hear people say it all the time. Oh, when I get married, no, 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 no. Then I'll become, I'll be, I'll do better. And sometimes I even hear about prospective, you know, like fiancés, and they think, well, no, no, well, when they when he gets married, he'll change. No, he won't. Nothing in life works like that. So, if you're unfaithful in things of least importance, you're not all of a sudden going to become a person of character and reliability and trustworthiness and things in, that require greater responsibility. If you want to see what a person will be like in a situation that requires a high level of character, look at their character in everyday situations. Because that's who they'll be. Because whether it's a serious situation or an everyday one, I'm still me.
1: The only thing we will take with us to heaven are the people around us. No amount of money or wealth will ever earn your way into salvation. God blesses people with resources so that they can bless others. It is important for us to consider the cost of discipleship and to properly prioritize our funds to give unto God and his kingdom, not our own personal kingdom that will one day be no more. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, nine a.m. to four p.m. This has been in the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word